Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. How was the ladies' conference uh, yesterday? Was that good? Thumbs up. Good. Um, here's what I will tell you. My wife was asleep and snoring by about 8.03 last night. So she had a full day and came home tired, but said it was a wonderful time. Thank you for uh, coming to that. And the men that were managing the house, thank you as well. Um, even maybe a more important question, how are my Sparty fans doing this morning? We happy to be at church? Um, wow, like one third of the room is happy, and then the other two thirds were really glaring at me. Um, we love you too, Michigan fans. So a funny story, I was uh, at Bo's soccer game yesterday. He had a game down in Zealand, and uh, it was about three in the afternoon, and I'm game's over, and I've got my four kids. We're getting in the car. We're getting ready to go home. Um, worn out, been a long day. And as we're driving out, a, a mom on our soccer team, who I don't even know that well, but we've kind of been on the, our kids are on the same team. As I'm pulling out, she jumps in front of my car to stop me. And I'm like, oh man, what's going on? Like, I don't know you that well. She goes, roll down your window, roll down your window. And I'm like, what's going on? And, and she goes, they scored. And I'm like, who scored? Michigan State, we're gonna win. Like, it runs deep here. So, um, and the funny thing is, is I'm from Illinois, so I don't have a dog in the fight. So I just like to rile up the losing team. So it's a win-win for me. Um, but thank you for being here this morning. Um, do me a favor, if you have uh, your Bibles, open them up to Colossians chapter 3. We've got a lot of um, work to do this morning. Um, we are um, in this series called Christian Worldview, and we're looking at kind of how does a Christian worldview shape our lives in very, very practical ways. And we kind of started the practical section of this with the big three. We're talking about um, sexuality a few weeks ago. We're talking about money. And then this week, we're talking about work. And it doesn't get a whole lot more practical than work, does it? Like there's some of you right now, even while I'm talking, you're thinking in your mind about what has to get done tomorrow at work. It's how we're wired. We spend more than half of our waking lives or work weeks at least at work. And many of us struggle not to bring work home as well. And uh, here's the big idea. It's very, very simple this morning. It's this. It's that when your work turns inwards, your work will destroy you. When we take our jobs and we turn them inwards onto ourselves, we are setting ourselves up to be destroyed and devoured by work. In Colossians 3, there's a ton of great stuff that Paul writes on our attitude when it comes to work, and we're going to get into that in a second. Um, but what I want to do right now um, is I want to explain there's something very, very interesting happening in our society, and uh, we are in a very unique cultural moment when it comes specifically to how Americans work and how we view work and the nature of work. We are in the midst of a cultural and generational shift when it comes to work. And a couple things have created this. The first thing that has created this is COVID has been a massive disruptive force in the economy and on the workplace. So we're coming up on almost two years now since things shut down because of COVID. And do you remember what happened? Like um, a bunch of, like all the factories closed, all the restaurants closed, the school closed. Um, most of us um, had to work from home. A bunch of us got laid off, but all of a sudden everything about work dramatically shifted. And here's what happened. For about a year, people primarily worked from home. And people realized, wait, I can do work and still be in my PJs? Like, that's not that bad of a gig. Wait, I don't have to lose an hour of my day every day commuting back and forth to work? 
hey, I can work from home and be more engaged in my kid's life. Hey, I don't have to deal with looking at my coworkers face to face every single day. We can have the awkward Zoom calls and that can take its place. And what happened is, is actually we got reshaped as an American workforce that was sort of like, man, I don't know if I'm content and I'm happy with this idea of going to an office, going to a workplace, and spending 45 to 50 hours of my week there. People don't want to commute, they want to work in their PJs, and they like the freedom that work from home provided. Um, this has hugely impacted our service industries and our hospitality industries. Like, I don't know if you've noticed this. If you go to any restaurant in our community right now, you're going to see massive signs that say basically hiring any shift, any position, we'll do whatever we can to get anyone come because people don't want to come into those type of jobs. They're offering more money to work at these jobs than ever before and still really struggling to retain employees. It's a massive shift that COVID has created. Here's another one. Um, Gen Y, which is millennials, and that's 40 and under. So if you're in your 30s, you are technically a millennial. So Gen Y and then Gen Z, which is 24 and under, um, they fundamentally view work and authority differently than the generations before them. There's been a shift in mindset amongst the generations and when I was on sabbatical this summer, I got a text from my sister, Catherine, and she goes, Cal, here's a book that you have to read. And my sister is way smarter than I am. She's reading all the time. And so if she says, Cal, you really need to read this. I trust her. So I, I picked up this book, and this book was called The Wounded Healer. And it's all about how do you pastor to the millennial generation? And it's interesting, the author of this book, it's a great book, really well written, but um, he refers to the millennial generation, Gen Y and then Gen Z as well, he calls them the fatherless generation. And, and he calls them the fatherless generation for a couple reasons. He says, first, they're the fatherless generation because a greater percentage of millennials, more than any other generation in world history, has grown up without the influence of a father at home. And this is something that we can statistically see. We talked about this in our message of sexuality, that one of the um, consequences of the sexual revolution and, and the um, kind of tearing down a biblical worldview of marriage is more and more kids are growing up without dads all the time. And he says, but another reason they're called the fatherless generation is they don't view authority like the rest of the world does. So um, here's what I'm going to do. I, I need to play this out with someone. So Paul, can you come up here quick? Um, and actually, this works really, really well. Paul, if you guys don't know him, he's one of the elders of our church. So, like, in a lot of ways, you actually are kind of my boss, right? Beth just said, if we sit here, he's going to call you up. Yep, well, she's, as we know, oftentimes our wives know more and are more um, in tune than we are. So, um, this is how it works. So, I, I just want to play this out. So, let's pretend, Paul, that you're my boss, which you don't really have to pretend because you're an elder. You are my boss. But, um, up until, uh, up until the millennial generation, this is how work was viewed. My role and my job was to make my boss happy. And I knew that I was doing a good job at work, and I knew that my job was secure if Paul liked me and, and if he was happy with the job I was doing. So when I would go to work today, I'd be like, hey, Paul, um, I know uh, you don't like coffee, so I got you your water bottle and I got you your donut, right? Because I'm kissing up because I want you to like me, and, and is there anything else you need me to do, and, and how can I make your life easier? 
The role of the employee was to take problems away from the employer. Well, you need to understand for people under the age of 40, this mentality has by and large flipped. Now, with this generation, it is a boss is only a good boss if they can get the employees to like them and think well of them. So now, instead of my attitude being, how do I make your life easy, I'm saying, all right, are you going to give me the best tools to do my job well? Are you going to, to mentor me and, and build me up? Are you going to spend time with me? Are you going to give me a seat at the table? Um, and oh, by the way, thank you so much. I love donuts and water. That was, what a good boss. He brought me my favorite stuff to work every day, right? This is the shift in mentality where, where for the younger generation, the boss is on trial for how good of a boss he is by whether or not he can get the employees to like him when from really throughout history, it's always been the other way around. So thank you, and you can actually keep these because I do like you and appreciate you. Love you, man. There's been a shift. And the interesting thing is, is from like now, Gen Y and Gen Z are the dominant um, age demographic in the workplace. And here's some statistics that, that will lay out what I'm showing you so you don't just have to take my word for it. Um, throw up the next slide. It says this, 40% of individuals believe they would be better um, at their job or better than their bosses at their, better at their job than their bosses are. Um, so, I mean, think about that. How hard is it to lead right now when 40% of the workforce believes they can do a better job no matter what it is than their boss? Um, two things millennials hate in the workplace is hierarchy and being told what to do. I read an article that said this way, that the millennial mantra is, I will work with you, I won't work for you. 92% of millennials feel their company is lucky to have them as an employee. And 76% of Gen Y workers feel their boss can learn a lot from them. That's from Business News Daily. A national survey done of Gen Z workers 24 and under show that they value flexibility higher than any other generation. About one-third say they demand a say over their work schedule, and more than one-third say they won't tolerate being forced to work when they don't want to or if they're denied the vacation days they request. So there is just a shift happening that finds us in a really unique cultural moment when it comes to work. A lot of the um, preconceived notions of the employer-employee relationship have been turned on its head. All right, so let's jump into Colossians 3 right now, and let's look biblically who we are called to be and how we are called to work. Colossians 3, starting at verse 22, says this. It says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. All right, I could spend the rest of our time just unpacking this one verse. There's a ton in here in just verse 22. But uh, here's what I want to pull out really quick. In this one verse, we can find three attributes of a really bad employee. All right, three attributes of a bad employee just from this one verse. Here's the first. I know I'm a bad employee when I won't do what I'm told. Do you see it right at the beginning? Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. He's saying, listen, if you work for someone, do what they ask you to do. It's very straightforward. If your boss, if your master, if they ask you to do something, do what you're asked to do. God is a God of order. He establishes authority and hierarchy, and we're called to obey and listen to our boss. And, and here's what's funny. Church, you have to understand this about our hearts. When we hear that, hey, do what you're told to do, 
everything in our mind, we turn into lawyers and we're like, where's the loophole? How do I get out of doing what I'm asked to do? And by the way, this was the original lie Satan told Eve in the garden. Do you really have to listen to God? I know God said you can have all of the trees of the garden, you just can't eat from this specific one. Like, is that really true? Do you really need to follow what God has told you to do? It's in our nature to want to, to um, brush up against the authorities over our life. And I've met with people over the last almost 11 years now, multiple times, and in any level of authority, whether it's citizens to government, kids to parents, wives to husband, um, employees to employer, I, I often get asked this question, when, it is, when is it okay to rebel? When do I not have to listen? And that answer is easy. When your authority is asking you to outright break the law of God, when they're causing you to sin, then you submit yourself to God over that authority. But church, here's what I want you to hear. 99.9% .9 of the time, they're not asking you to sin. They're just asking you, you to do something you don't want to do. They're asking you to work more hours than you want. They're not appreciating you enough. They're um, taking your work for granted. Very, very rarely is it an outright sin case when I meet with people. It is more, I'm just not happy. I don't like my boss. I don't like my construct. It's not an excuse to not do what you have been told. Here's the next thing we see in this passage, and another way you know you're a bad employee, it's this. It says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, and not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So you know you're a bad employee when I work differently when the boss is around. Right? He says, don't work as people pleasers. Don't work in the way of eye service, but work hard and integrity whether or not you are seen. Do you work just as hard even if you know your work is likely to go unnoticed? My uh, senior year of high school, it was in the fall, and we were in our, our, my, my senior year soccer season. And um, if you played high school sports, you know senior year, it's your last chance. It means more to the seniors than it does to everyone else. We had a really good soccer team. I was playing at WMC. We were ranked number one in the state in Division Four, and it was like, all right, we're going to give everything we can to see how far we can go. And uh, there was a kid on our team um, who was a junior, and uh, he was a really talented player. He had all of the skills, he had everything that you would want in a player, but he was so lazy. He, he just didn't have the drive to be the best that he could be. And I remember there was one day in particular where the coach split our team up into six different groups and, and we were doing a drill and, and this kid was in my group. And what the, the player would do is the, the coach would kind of be walking around, checking in on all the groups, watching each of them train. And whenever the coach wasn't looking, this kid wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't run. He wouldn't try. He wouldn't do the drill. Super lazy. But guess what happened when the coach showed up? Right? All of a sudden, he's locked in, and he's working, and he's trying the hardest because he sees that the coach sees, and the coach is the one who determines playing time. So I'm going to try when the coach is looking, but when he turns his back... I'm going to just do nothing. Well, that happened the first time the coach walked by, and I noticed it. And I was like, well, that's weird. And uh, he was being lazy, being lazy. Coach walked by a second time. He started to work hard again. And uh, then I got mad. And uh, the second the coach turned away the second time, behind the play, totally dirty, I went up and I followed this kid as hard as I possibly could. 
and he was on the ground rolling and whining and complaining, and I just stand up, I stood over him, and I said, never again. Like, we are going to work with integrity. We're not going to allow people to be lazy and to only work when the coach is around. And I'm not saying that's like my shining moment. Don't, don't hear me. Don't hear me wrong. Like, I, I would probably take that back, but I'm just telling you, here's what I'm saying. You're not going to win any friends with your coworkers <laughs> if you work one way when the boss is there and you work a different way um, when you're on your own. Like, people see through that really, really quickly. You know, I've had the privilege to lead here at this church as the lead pastor for five or six years now, and one of the things I've come to realize is there's nothing more valuable than a pastor that I know is working with integrity, working hard, and doing what he's asked to do, even if I'm not engaged in checking in on him. Like, I tell people often, like, listen, you know I'm happy with the job you're doing if you have the freedom to just go and run with it. If all of a sudden I'm wanting to meet with you every other day and really diving into the nitty-gritty of your ministry, it's because I think something's broken that we might need to fix. There's a huge value in having integrity, being consistent, working hard, even when the boss isn't around. Okay, here's the third way you're a bad employee. It's this. It's when I don't know who my boss is. When I don't know who my boss is. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, and not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but look at this, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Why do we work hard? Why do we work with integrity? Why do we do what we're told? Because we fear the Lord. We are working for our heavenly master. So, so here's what this means. Our devotion to Christ. Church, look here. If you really believe that you belong to Christ... That if he is ours and we are his, that has to impact how we view us going to work tomorrow morning. We work to serve the Lord. And here's what I would say. One of the greatest blessings about being an American is our freedom of religion. Wouldn't you agree? Like, if you're with me, just raise your hand so you say, like, man, I'm really happy for that. Yeah, and there's people that have sacrificed greatly for that. And I love that I can identify as a Christian and, and my, uh, we're free to come worship. It won't impact my job or, or my career. Like, it is a beautiful freedom. But you need to also understand, church, with these freedoms come inherent challenges. And, and here's what I mean. Because our Christianity is free... If we're not careful and if we're not diligent, we will take what's free and make it cheap. Okay, here, here's what I'm trying to say. The things that cost us a lot, we tend to value more, right? Like if you save for years and years and you buy yourself a really nice car, right? Here's what I bet. I bet you're going to take it to the car wash. I bet you're going to make sure it's clean. You're going to take care of it because it costs you a lot and it's valuable to you. Now, if you get a, you know, passed down, passed down beater of a car that's got 250,000 miles and they're just like, yeah, you can have it for free. It's probably only going to work for three months. You're probably not going to be as concerned about how nice it looks or what kind of shape it is. You got it for free. You don't know how long it's going to last and you'll run it till it's dead and then you'll go on to the next thing. Listen, if you're a Christian today, and you live in China, or in Syria, or in Afghanistan, if you were like Paul and you were a Jewish Christian during the time of Christ and the New Testament, your faith was going to cost you practically in a ton of ways. You'd get kicked out of your family, you might go to jail, 
your life might be on the line, it might cost you your job, it will cost you your reputation. And listen, there's a lot of awful in that, but one of the blessings of that is, is it caused people to treasure their faith with everything they had because it cost them so much. In America, the cost of following Christ is very low, and so what happens is we get very, very good at minimalizing how Christ should impact our lives. We think that the Jesus thing is the church thing and the small group thing and that part of our life, but how we work or how we operate with friends, we put in different boxes. If we truly belong to Christ, then the way I work and the way I interact with those has to be different than those who are living for something or someone else. It's got to impact us. We're working for Christ. Our work is not ultimately driven by how good our boss is, how much we are making, or how great the company is. We do it out of service and reverence to God, which means our work will always have value. Okay. So here's what I want to do now before we jump into the rest of the passage. I want to show this big theme that we're trying to do in this series. And there's a consistent theme in worldviews that I want you to see and realize right now. Right, in the last three weeks, we have talked about sexuality, money, and now work. And one of the things we're trying to do is to show how a Christian worldview and a secular worldview differ from each other. So just to remind us, you guys should have already had this somewhere in your notes. Here's the definition of our culture of secular humanism. It's this, the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without the belief in God. Right, so we live in a culture that says that, listen, if we place ourselves at the center rather than God, we can be happy. That life, that joy, that fulfillment is not found in worshiping a creator, but it's found in placing ourselves as the highest level of authority. And so what we do is, is we take things like sex and money and work and we turn them inwards on ourselves and we're saying, put us at the center, make it about us, Use these things selfishly, and that will lead to life and joy. And the same thing is true for work. Here's the danger of a secular humanism view of work. There's three dangers. The first is, is if I make work all about me, work is the object of my fulfillment. Work becomes the thing that I think will give me value and identity. Anyone in here fans of the old show, The Office? I think the guy that best, someone was going like this, that kind of scares me, I'll be praying for you. Um, one of the, I think the people that best play this out is Dwight Shute from The Office. Remember like he goes to Jim and to all the coworkers, hey, I just want everyone to know, I'm the assistant regional manager. And Jim's always quick to say, no, you're the assistant to the regional manager. And it like makes him furious, but like his title is the thing that gives him worth and identity. And there are so many people in our culture that it's like, man, my work and my job and my pay bracket, it is the thing that defines me. And if I don't succeed at work, I'm not going to have any value as a human. Another way this gets dangerous is if we place ourselves in the middle, then the work is the means to my fulfillment. So I might not be fulfilled now, but that's just because I haven't gotten the next promotion and the next title. And I'm always one or two steps away from truly being happy. So I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep prioritizing that over everything else. I'm going to minimize my God, my family, my friends. I'm running the rat race because I think that piece of cheese is, is right around the corner. Or the third way, and this is kind of the opposite, is work is the enemy of my fulfillment. We tend to really hate our jobs. 
And we're like, man, the reason I'm not happy is because of my work. And if I just had a different job or if I was valued more or if I was moved in the company, that would make me happy. And my life would be good if I didn't have this terrible job. And here's what I would say, by the way. Um, my wife and I, we've been married um, 13 years now, I think. I, you can ask her for sure, but that's what I, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, we have been in a small group all 13 years. Every year since the first year we were married, we've been in a small group. And so that means I have sat in split time with hundreds and hundreds of men. And I can promise you the number one complaint. It's not their kids. It's not their wife. It's not their in-laws. It's work. And almost always it's because work has become a thing that is selfish and they're making it all about them. And it's not providing the fulfillment it promises. Is work good? Yes. Is it a good thing to love what you do? Absolutely. Was work designed to be the primary source of deep fulfillment in your life? No. And, and so here's what I would say. The difference ultimately between Christian worldview and a secular humanism worldview is the gospel compels us to not turn inwards but to turn outwards. The gospel says that joy in life is not found by viewing everything through the lens of what can it do for me and my selfishness, but we have been called to turn our activity onto others and on to God. We live for something greater than ourselves. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 22 when he's questioned by the Pharisees. It's on the screen. Follow along as I read. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And he said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and all of the prophets. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying. You can boil down everything in following God to two things. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. And what he's saying is, is it's more than just a feeling. It's more than just an emotion. It is everything I have belongs with the Lord. All of my heart, soul, mind. He's what I love. He's what I adore. He's what I think about. My direction in life is um, given to me by God. And then it's to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and why do we do this? Because we are imitating the God we serve. Right? God is a God who loves and gives. The Trinity, it's three persons in one in mutual love and service to one another. Right? Think about creation. God gives us the world. He gives us a beautiful garden. He says, all of this is yours to steward and manage. He gives it to us. And then we sin and we rebel. And what does God do? He gives us his son. He gives us a redeemer. He gives us Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lays down his life so that we might be made right before God. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. He gives and gives. And then after he uh, rises from the dead, defeats sin and death, guess what he does? He doesn't stop giving. He gives us his spirit to walk with us, to be near to us, so that we can have direct access to God at any given moment. Gives, gives, gives. And the Christian worldview says is we need to be like our God and what will bring joy and fulfillment in life is not when we view everything selfishly, but when we love God and serve others. 
And one of the main goals of this worldview series is to show you that secular humanism is a failed worldview. It's not working. And as our world spirals more and more into selfishness, it's not delivering its promises. People aren't happier. They're not more fulfilled. They're more angry, desperate, miserable, addicted by every measurable statistic. And you don't need to look at the statistics. We feel this, right? So part of what we're trying to do, church, is give you hope and encouragement that God's way is the way that works. And as we go away from God as a society, we shouldn't be stunned that it's not working. And by the way, all of this makes sense. Again, I've used this analogy before, but I'm going to use it again because it's so powerful. Think about the most selfish person you know. Who is the most self-centered, selfish person you know? Are they happy? They're not, are they? They're usually miserable and they're lonely and they can't figure out why they're miserable and lonely. It's because selfishness is a failed worldview. So if we know that that's true, so then why would we think a worldview that screams, be whoever you want, do whatever you want, only care about what brings you fulfillment, why would we think that that's going to lead us to joy? There's some of you that desperately need to hear this right now. The greatest enemy of your joy is your own selfishness. There's some of you that come into church today and you're grumpy and you're miserable and you're not sure why. There's something in your life that you're being really selfish about that you need to repent and change in. And I tell you that because I love you. Listen, I deal with this in my own heart all the time, right? There are moments when I wake up and I'm just irritable and I don't want to be around Mary and the kids and I'm grumpy. I don't want to go into the office. Like, it's like, have you heard the saying, like I've woken up on the wrong side of the bed? Can I change that for you? Can we promise not to say we woke up on the wrong side of the bed anymore? Can we just say we woke up selfish? That's what's really going on. We've woken up selfish and we want the entire world to bow down to our whims and our desires and it's not happening and that makes us irritable. So what do I have to do? I've got to pray and I've got to engage my heart and say, what's wrong? Because something's broken. Where am I being selfish? And I need to repent and then I need to change my heart to how can I love others like myself right now? Because that's what my heart needs if the joy is going to flow back into my life. All right, look back at Colossians 3. Let's keep going. Now Paul is going to show us how belonging to Christ shapes how we view work. It says this. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master who is in heaven. Okay, so here's how I want to close our time together. It's this. I want to look at four ways a Christian worldview shapes how I work. Here's the first way. We need to understand that God cares deeply about how I work. God cares deeply about our work. You see it right in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily. All right, that's a little bit of an older term. What he's saying is, is in whatever you do, work hard. Like God cares that we are hard workers. Doesn't matter what the job is, regardless of what we're called to, the call is always to work hard. Proverbs 12, 24 says, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. I love this one. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. 29. 
Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. It doesn't matter what it is, but if you're skillful and you give your best and you work hard, it will be acknowledged. Martin Luther King said it this way. He said, if someone is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all of the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. I love that. He's saying, whatever you're called to, whatever your job is, we can give our best, and then we can trust God with the results. Church, here's one of the things I I want you to understand. God is a God who cares a lot about the process. He cares that we're faithful in the little things, faithful in the process, and then we trust the results to him. Listen, this plays out in my life all the time. Like, one of the primary roles of my job is I'm a preacher and teacher. And there's a ton of different ways that plays out throughout the week. I was teaching a discipleship class um, this Tuesday for Chris. I preach here on the weekends. I have done youth conferences and youth camps. And here's what I have to ask myself every time I prepare a lesson, whether it's for 15 people or for 1,000 people. I've got to ask this question. Did I give the best that I could? Did I do my best job? It doesn't always mean my sermon's going to be amazing. Like if you guys have been here, you know that, right? Not everyone's a home run, but I can lay my head on my pillow before the Lord and say, I gave everything I could, and I'm just going to trust that the Lord uses that. And God, in his sense of humor, what he does is oftentimes I will preach a message and Mary will be like, how did it go? And I'm like, that was awful. And then like three people will email me that week, man, your terrible message changed my life, right? Like trust God with the results. We don't always know what we sow, what we will reap but we're called to work hard. God cares about our work. Here's the second thing. Again, I'm I'm gonna say this again. I'm ultimately working for Jesus. I'm ultimately working for Jesus. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. How would our attitudes change towards work if we really believed this? Like, here's the thing. When you come to work with the attitude of, it's pointless, I hate my job, and I'm miserable, Look here, you realize that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like the chances of you having a good day when the first thought in your mind is, I don't want to get up and go to work and I hate my job, it's minuscule. It's not going to happen. But when I wake up and my first thought of the day is, is man, God has been good. He has been faithful. Jesus is my master. And even if I don't love this construct of my work environment right now, Ultimately, I'm working for Christ, and I can be a light and have a positive impact for the kingdom of God today. You're going to have a way better chance of success than if you view it selfishly and are choosing to be miserable. Here's the third one, and I love this one. It's this. God will treat me fairly. God will treat me fairly. Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master who is in heaven. See what he's saying? He's saying, listen, God sees, and ultimately he is the one who's going to give you a reward, and he is trustworthy, and he's fair. 
right? In those moments when we feel like we're being taken advantage of, that no one sees, that no one cares, that you're being neglected or lied about or, 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 or are being um, just whatever word you want to use in the workplace, that we as Christians can say, but it doesn't end here. God is good. He's faithful. He's just. He sees if I honor him, there is going to be an eternal reward. And by the way, the opposite is true. Do you see how Paul ends that thing with a warning to bosses and masters? He says, be sure to treat the people under you with fairness and with dignity and respect because you have a master in heaven who's going to hold you accountable. He is saying, listen, ultimately we work for Jesus that God sees we're going to be held account and treated fairly. And I hope that's a word of hope and encouragement to those of you who are just in a work construct where you are being mistreated or undervalued. You're never undervalued by God. And then here's the third. Um, I have more than one job. I have more than one job. Or here, the fourth, sorry. I have more than one job. In Ephesians 4, Paul is writing about how God set up the church to function, and he writes this. He says, and he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists, shepherds and teachers, look at this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. See what Paul's saying there? He's saying that my job as a preacher and teacher is to equip all of you to do what? Can you see it? To do the work of ministry. He's saying that all of us carry the responsibility to be ministers of the gospel. My job is specific to train you how to do it. That all of us are called to represent Jesus and to point people by with what we say and how we live to the hope of Christ. You don't just work for an insurance company, Mario. You work for the Lord. You don't just work as a salesman. You work for the Lord. You don't just work as a lawyer. You work for the Lord. You don't just work as a teacher. You work for the Lord. All of us have been called to be a light, and that gives our workplace every single day eternal value. And by the way, there's so many of us that do this here at this church so well. Um, there was a guy in my small group just this week. He... Um, had a, a guy at his workplace um, had an accident at work and um, he hurt his leg. He had to go to the hospital and uh, this guy at my work doesn't even know this guy super well. He doesn't manage him, but he knew that this was a young kid in his early 20s who wasn't married and didn't have any family in the area. So guess what he did? He went and sat with the guy all night at the hospital. Just want someone to sit there with you. Just want to be there for you. Just want you to have someone to talk to because this is um, you went through an accident, and it's scary, and it's lonely, and I want to be here. That's what being a minister of light is. I want to close our time by um, just giving you a word of maybe challenge or encouragement. I uh, got to have a conversation today, with a, uh, or this week, with a guy who's 67 years old. So he's been working for a long time, and uh, he, his job is he is a... Um, kind of a motivational speaker, but he's more of a coach for um, corporations. And so what happens is, is he gets contracted out all over the country to work with school systems, to work with um, big, big, big companies, and, and he works to help um, coach workers and managers and leaders and to make sure these corporations are healthy. 
and I was talking with him this week and I asked him a question. I'm like, are you seeing an uptick in chaos ever since COVID happened? Like, like, has your job changed in what you're dealing with? And he goes, Cal, to call it an uptick would be the understatement of the century. And he goes, Cal, in every call I have, in every meeting I have, in every environment that I work in, the only word you can describe it is chaos. People are angry, they're unsatisfied, they're scared. It is chaos. And then he said something that I think was really profound. He said, Cal, I firmly believe there's never been a moment where Christians can be a light for Christ through the gospel of peace than right now. Here's what he's saying. We can be a massive light for Christ if all we do is we go to work and we're not insane. It's not even that high of a bar. If we're not rattled, if we're not angry, if we're not revolting, if we're not rebelling, but if we can just be people that say, I work hard as unto the Lord and my identity and joy aren't tied to this. So I give my best, but then I put my hope in the things that will not fail me. And that is a God who loves me, who gives to me, who cares for me and who is with me. And then I love my family and I'm involved in my church and I'm organizing and orchestrating my life in a way that is gonna provide stability and not chaos. We will be a massive light for the gospel. Our work matters, amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this morning. I thank you for this church. God, I thank you for um, just the ministry that was able to happen here uh, yesterday with the um, women's conference. God, I thank you for Nancy and how you used her words in the life of our women. I thank you for the ladies who led worship and just all that that um, day was. God, I just pray um, that even to tonight and this afternoon as we spend time with family and do um, whatever our busy schedules require of us, that we would just take some time to thank you for your goodness, to thank you that you are a God who loves and gives and pursues. God, would you guard us from doing what our hearts so often long to do and make everything about us and to be selfish, God? Would we pursue you? Would you help us? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.